So uh, just uh, in the pause before the talk begins, I think we can find our way together. We can find we can find a resource of of connection. See, it's not very far away. It's not so distant. Why are we so afraid of it? Why does it scare us so much? When it's it's as accessible as being quiet. And sure enough, there were a variety of responses to the talk last night. Some of them with a little bit of trepidation about getting themselves involved in this kind of thing. What kind of thing? (laughs) As if we're, or the life we live is so holy and sacred, huh? As if the paradigm we're in is such a, such a, um, such a paradigm of heaven. <clears throat> There's a story of FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, I think it was 1941, right after Pearl Harbor. He called the automakers uh, to his Oval Office. And he, uh, he said to them, uh, I want to uh, have you tool the, your automobile factories so that we'll produce uh, 20,000 uh, airplanes and 30,000 tanks in the next three years. And the automakers were aghast. They said, we don't think we can do that, Mr. President. We don't think we have the capacity to be able to produce the automobiles we're producing and add this extra burden to our assembly lines. And he said, wait a minute. You don't understand. There will be no more automobiles being made in the next three years. There will be only tanks and airplanes. And in fact, we exceeded that number. That's a paradigm shift. It's not business as usual. And is it so far away from us? Am I drumming a beat that sometimes I feel like I'm alone in a valley? But how many of you felt the wind come through this time of evening as it whistles through the trees and crosses our paths and touches us? Is the tenderness that meets that, is that so distant? Is that so extreme? Is that so fearsome? How about the quality of heart that's shown Anne, our most frail member, and the care and attention that many of you are giving her as she needs some assistance to get from the dining hall to here or even around dinner? I'm glad she here. she's here because she brings the, the paradigm shift to each one of us. If we think it's in the sitting and not in the connecting, 
We've missed the point. Is that so terrifying? Wouldn't we rather live in a world that meets each other with that quality of heart than the stone-hard, insulated selfishness that this world is formed out of? What is it that I'm saying that seems to be so radical? I don't get it. Because to me, it's the natural next step of humankind. And it, all it means is giving up an idea about ourselves. Nothing of any relevance, nothing of any worth. A simple image, a simple idea is all we have to cross over to expose our hearts to the rawness of that tenderness we've already seen. So tonight I want to talk about the mechanism. The mechanism. Last night I talked about the orientation towards awakening. What, how we have, from the paradigm we're in, how we have to orient our spiritual practice so that we're in line with the shift whenever it occurs. And it's not up for us to force its occurrence. It's up to us to act in accordance with it and then the occurrence will happen. That's the knock that assures the door will open. And your sincerity of heart. That's the knock. But if we're going east instead of north or west or south, you'll never hear the knock. And the knock won't be made. Even if the door were open, you would miss it. You wouldn't want even want to go because you're heading in a different direction. So to be aligned... With that. And then you keep all the windows open, you keep your floor clean, you keep your direction certain, and if the wind comes, which it's sure to, at some point it comes. And it's none of our business when that occurs, but it will come. First, we have to feel the need for the shift. And that's what I was trying to say last night. We have to feel the need. We have to see the urgency of the world and the need that this must occur. It must occur. The evolution must happen. And it has to be felt with that degree of immediacy for us, in us. Love must surface is another way to say it. I'm just using different words. <clears throat> but if we, if we keep just sort of drugging our way through this life's experience, just kind of hoping that the dream will give forth the rewards we're hoping for, that somehow this whole thing will straighten out somehow or other. Like we do with the climate change. You know, know, we keep arguing about whether it's happening. Meanwhile, it's happening. But I don't think think we know the causes. I don't think it's human-made. I don't care if it's human-made or not. Let's do something. Let's act in accordance with what we know.
So once we see that need, then we line up. We line up just because it's it's like lining up when you know you're terminally ill. You just start lining up. Your life lines up. And I've seen it many, many times on a prognosis of terminal illness. You just line up. That's it. Okay. For those who are ready to take it on, your life becomes straight and narrow. Becomes the heart's way. Don't have time to argue. I don't have any more time to argue. There's no time for that. So let's look at the strategies by which we normally work, the paradigm we're in, and let's look at the strategies which allow us to change and move into a new paradigm. And so I call this talk from adaptation to surrender. Now adaptation is we're one of the most adaptive species that has ever lived. We have gone everywhere. We started in Africa and some million years or so ago we found our way in through uh, Europe across the expanses of the continents, filling the continents from North America to South America, from Arctic to Antarctic. Now that's an amazingly adaptive species that can feel at home in the frigid temperatures of the Arctic and equally at home in the Kalahari Desert of Australia. Isn't that amazing? And at each of those, with each of that adaptation, we we get familiar. Within that familiarity, there's a comfort range. We develop a comfort with what we have adapted to. And so we just keep adapting. And uh, you know, no matter what difficulty you're having or you perceive, you can adapt your life so that it changes. You look at what anyone is eating, you look at how anyone is dressing, you look at the uh, how people are housed, each of us have the capacity to adapt to that, those same conditions, given the need to do so. And that once we define our comfort level, then what happens is we start defending that comfort level. We defend our igloo against whoever might be encroaching upon it, or our house, or our hut, or our street corner, if we're homeless. And so our strategy, of course, is to defend where we are comfortable, what is familiar to us. And we call this, in its most extreme form, patriotism. We also have a remarkable, the same adaptive quality that can go anywhere on the face of the earth and feel comfortable and familiar. Comfortable not meaning that it's pleasant, but meaning that it's familiar, that you'll defend it. We also have an enormous adaptability of our internal environment. Now stay with me on this one because this is where it gets rich. We have lived with a certain 
attitude, association, posture to life, a certain disposition to life, a certain assumption about life, and a certain assumption about ourselves within life. And we have adapted to those assumptions over time. And they are fixed within us, certainties. And they are also, even though they may be very uncomfortable assumptions, they are familiar. They may be as hot as the Sahara Desert. It doesn't matter. They're familiar because we have landed there and rested our life upon those assumptions. Even our drama. Some of us are so adaptable that we have adapted to a certain kind of drama intensity in our life. And so we keep it moving. We keep the drama happening in some way or other because it's familiar. It's comfortable to be dramatic, to have drama happening to us, to be emotional, vo- emotionally volatile, to be on the edge of, of neuroses and anxiety and, and always afraid and, you know, like... Like we're holding on to a 120 volt and our hair is... <laughs> and we will maintain that level. Why shouldn't we? Because we're familiar with it. It's the same defense as the defense of our homeland. It's the same one. And why shouldn't we? We'll defend it. And so we'll, we come to uh, meditation and we see those assumptions, but we're not going to change them. We're not going to alter assumptions. Those assumptions have got us to where we are. And even though we are all limping where we are, so we look across the room and the other person is limping next to us anyway. So what's the big deal? And until we see the same destructiveness within those assumptions, until we reach the end, until we have bottomed out, until we cannot no longer tolerate the pain that is held within those assumptions, we have no interest in moving outside of them whatsoever, as we do from our homeland or as we do from any other Familiarity. That's why climate change is, we're so rigidly adherent to, because this is our comfort level. It's easier to deny our posterity a life that's similar to ours by denying the climate is changing than to have to change our and adapt our life so that we are outside of our comfort level. We'd rather have our children be forfeit the results, not us. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I can't even believe it came out of my mouth. But that's absolutely true, isn't it? I told one friend of mine who is conservative, he was saying, flying change isn't real, this is just a normal fluctuation in climate. I said, okay, so what you've done is you've gone to Las Vegas and you've put your children on red and you've spun the wheel and I'll give you a 49 to 51% chance that you're right. I don't think it's even that close. I think it's more like 
99.992.001. And I'll give you a 49 to, to 51. Your children's lives are on red. The wheel is spinning. You going to leave them there? As it ticks, 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 ticks. Because that's what you're doing. And your grandchildren, you're not just leaving your children, your grandchildren, and perhaps humankind for the next 10,000 years. Now, some of us use our adaptive response in our meditation very effectively. We get very clever with our adaptive response. And I've heard some Sangha members say to one another, I overheard the conversation, they were t- he was talking about a difficulty he was having or something. And the other Sangha member said, just change your attitude. Just change your attitude. And as if that were the Dharma uh if that was a, a, the Dharma advice being offered. Change your attitude. So I can remember my niece giving me the same advice one time when I was complaining in line uh, to some kind of a, an event. She was standing there. She was about uh, 12 years old at the time. And I was going, oh God, this line is so hot outside. And I have to, she said, just change your attitude, Uncle Rod. <laughs> <laughs> So fair enough. So there's an, but listen, you've, be astute here. Because I'm not going to leave you here. So we think, all right, changing our attitude. Right, and we can mostly do that. In fact, there have been books, recent books, about how to change the verbalization, the narrative within ourselves to make us feel buoyant and joyful rather than miserable and whatever. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's not wrong at all. It's helpful. It's very helpful to have that sort of mobility of mind to be able to up-level your attitude. It's very, very helpful. Very helpful. In fact, it gets even more subtle. As we become more nuanced in the way of the mind, we can start changing our thoughts. And so as our thoughts begin to bend in a certain direction, we can create a different range of thinking. We can uplift. We can make them uh, buoyant. And so we get very clever at being able to alter what is. Altering what is is not the same as being with what is. Altering what is, is equivalent to behavior modification. It's adaptation. It's tweaking what is there to make us, to make us more contented, to bring forth the emotions that thoughts will bring forth, those conditions, juggling the conditions so that things will arise that are more comfortable to us than the mood we might be in or whatever might be occurring. So it's to stay within our comfort range, our adaptive, familiar range. Again, I'm not criticizing that, but it's not a paradigm shift. 
It's an adaptation of the paradigm we are in. And most of us concede our dharma to adaptation. Behavior modification. It's like saying, well, I see the glass half empty. I'll just change my attitude and see it half full. Or it's like mastering the power of positive thinking. I'll just think in a different way. And we call that dharma. And there's, along with our adaptive nature, we look at our spiritual journey with the same mind that has adapted to everything else and it looks at its spiritual journey. And the spiritual journey is laid out often, in this tradition in particular, as an adaptive response. It's talked about in terms of, listen to the words, cultivation. It's talked about in terms of lifetimes, modification, changing within the adaptive nature of what already is. You see how sneaky this is. You see how very quickly we get lost because it's what's familiar. Adaptation is what's familiar. Now it's not just the continent that we're on, the self-induced attitude that we're comfortable with. It's the very process itself that we have long since become familiar and comfortable with. The sense of being willing and able to adapt. And so what we're really adapting, if we look at closely, what does adaptation mean? It means the narrative, our inward narrative, the commentary that goes endlessly on in us, that knows exactly what it has done and where it's going, knows exactly why it's doing what it's doing in relation to the next step in life. Right? All of it's down, plotted, in indelible ink in ourselves. Suddenly we see the need to have to change paragraphs, change sentence structure, alter the direction the narrative is going. And so really adaptation is just changing our storyline. Is it not? In fact, you could define the paradigm we're in as the endless story of our life. Now, yes, when we adapt, there's a sense of loss, often a sense of grief associated with losing something that was familiar and having to move on to what is unfamiliar. And in that gap between the familiar and the unfamiliar lies the grief process. Until we adapt to the unfamiliar, which we will, because that's what the grief process does. At first, it starts out as an argument against having to adapt, a denial. I'm not dying. He's not dying. I don't have to leave home. He didn't leave me. I mean, there's just whatever it is, the change 
whatever it is that we're changing from and toward. So there's that. There's the denial, the sense of staking out our claim against the reality that's upon us, of pulling back and entrenching ourselves against the possibility of having to adapt further. So there's a, at first a recalcitrant feeling, a contracting feeling back in as we circle the wagons of our around the familiar. And then there is the uh, ferocity of when reality gets in, when we see the inevitability of having to give up what we have had and where we are going, there is anger, the response of anger. And may I just say that I can't think of a single incident of anger that is not a grief response. And if you start looking at anger as grief, you will see it very differently than if you just look at it as righteousness. And then there is the inevitable compromise that we have to make. Once the anger has subsided, we try to compromise our way out of it. If I'm having to leave my hometown and move somewhere else because my job has been uprooted, I say to the people, I'll be back. I'll come back many times. I'll be visiting. You'll never even miss me. I'll be here so much. The compromise, right? To try to bring the familiar along with us into the unfamiliar. And then, if we are extraordinarily progressive, we actually come to a settledness in ourselves where we have now taken on what was once familiar and it's beginning to become comfortably familiar. Living without the loss. Living with the fact. Moving from Houston to Seattle. It sometimes takes years to come to that degree of settledness. But then wherever we've settled, we start a new adaption, adaptation. Now Seattle is my home. And I can't believe I ever lived in Houston. It's hot, it's humid. God, when I go back, it's like, I don't know how I could have done it. Right? It was amazing. You know, when I I went from Bangkok, which, I don't know, is like 105 and 98% humidity, to Houston, which is 99 degrees and 99%. <laughs> And I thought, well, this is this isn't bad. I can do this. And then I went to Massachusetts, where the summers didn't even begin at that time until uh, Memorial Day. And then I remember it getting like 90 degrees, and I thought, this is nothing. And everybody was like, <laughs> like a panning dog. And I thought, man, they should go to Houston. And then I went to Seattle which have summers usually, not anymore, but in the mid-70s, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe what it feels like to be cool. I remember thinking that. And now I go back to Massachusetts and I can't stand the heat. I can't even go to Houston in the summer. I have to go in the fall when it's the coolest. And I never even consider Bangkok. You see? And I'm willing to fight for my Seattle temperature. 
What happened to all those people out there that were so comfortable where they were at one point? And so in spirituality, we then bring that familiar progression of adaptation into our... We realize we have to change, so we're willing to change. And we don't particularly like it, but we'll adapt. We'll adapt. We kind of actually like at some point moving into the unfamiliar and challenging ourselves and, and readapting to different situations. This is, it's all good. It's all positive because it's moving us into a more open stance, into a, you know, not being clingy to what we have and, and, uh, etc. And we hear the messages of the Dharma like, uh, you know, that everything is impermanent and we start talking ourselves. Now we start talking into the narrative of our life about things passing and things will change and, we then develop a narrative that allows that to occur with minimal resistance so that when we get old, even though it hurts to... we have, this, I, I expected this. I know that this was going to happen. I'm sophisticated enough in the Dharma that it's not going to upset me. I got it down. So our narrative just keeps expounding. We get very good at being, we're very creative writers. (laughs) Extraordinarily creative writers in our adaptive form. Now I just, there is a difference between wise effort and unwise effort. So just listen to this in terms of what I've been saying. Wise effort is informed by wisdom. Unwise effort is directed by opinions. Wise effort meets an obstruction and surrenders any resistance to that obstruction. That's wisdom. It doesn't resist. It knows the futility of resistance. Unwise effort meets an obstruction and strategizes a way through or around it. Unwise effort is the adaptive response of the mind to increasingly irritated or resisting or, or uh, situations. Wise effort is the the loss of any resistance, the absolutely surrendering any resistance is wise because there's a knowing in that moment that the reason this thing is made into something is because I'm investing that something into it. And therefore, my reaction to it makes it that something, makes it that problem, makes it that obstacle, makes it that difficulty. If I release all resistance, the difficulty dissipates. It becomes translucent. So the difference between an adaptive response and a wise response is the communication we're offering the object that we call the problem. 
to realize the empty nature of things. We cannot tweak that something into emptiness. We can't just keep changing it a little bit so that eventually at some disposition of it, some way that we're moving it, it'll fall into emptiness. The tweaking it itself creates the problem forever. As long as we're tweaking, we've got a problem with it. And that need to sort of justify it, to get it so that I can settle with comfortably with something, is our need to adapt to it. You know, there are prisoners who become so institutionalized in prison after 20, 30, 40 years in prison that they will commit a deliberate crime prior to being released so that they can continue their sentence and not have to go outside to the, into the open. This is not just once in a while. It's routine. In fact, the guards expect there to be trouble in the last year of a prison's of a, of a of a sentence for that very reason because of the fear of moving out into the open now i talked about two dimensions let us look at this sense of adaptability or surrender in relationship to two dimensions and i mentioned one noon not this, not at the two o'clock sitting today, but yesterday, I believe. About, there's, some of you were showing some drowsiness, and I says, okay, there's the sleepy person, but is awareness sleepy? If you invest in the sleepy person, then you're going to find a sleepiness a challenge. You're going to find it a problem. You're going to do whatever you need to do to adapt to the sleepiness so that you can continue to meditate while sleepiness is still arising. But sleepiness is a definite problem that we try to surmount by standing up, by doing whatever we can so that we can continue to do a parallel activity called meditation in relationship to it. But when I suggested, I said, is awareness sleepy? Awareness switches paradigms. That which sees the sleepiness is not sleepy. And if you can just for a moment get a sense that awareness is always an available alternative to the angst, to the adaptive response, to the fright, to the recoiling back of the problem we perceive. Because that which holds the problem, sees no problem. That which has the problem is the form of me in relationship to the dimension I've been talking about. I have a narrative, I have a narrative about my sleepiness, how I'm always succumbing to sleepiness, how I guess I have to stop meditating because I'm just so tired all the time. And I've never found a resolution. I've tried everything. Coffee, I've tried everything. But that's not, that is the adaptation, the person trying to adapt to the problem. That's what our whole lives have been about, what our whole culture has been about. 
That's not surrender. We surrender. What we surrender, we surrender our separation. That which holds the sleepiness is not sleepy. And therefore it has no problem at all with whatever disposition the person takes. Are you angry? Is the awareness angry? I'm angry. Is the awareness angry? I'm irritated. Is the awareness irritated? You don't understand. I'm irritated. Well, you can stay irritated. I can't help you much. But is the awareness irritated? And the true spiritual journey is to stop investing in the person who is, fill in the blank, and start seeing what is there, the formlessness, of that which holds the problem and has never had a problem with the problem because it perceives no problem. There's no resistance there. It's just sleepiness. It's just things as they are. It's not a burden to have things be the way they are when there is no desire or narrative for them to be any other way. So surrendering, another way of saying it is to surrender the narrative. Surrender the language the adaptability of language to try to change the situation so that we can remain comfortable. You surrender your comfort. But you don't surrender your contentment. You surrender into contentment. Because comfort and contentment are two very different things. Comfort is what we try to establish in terms of pleasant feelings. Contentment is resting without any resistance. It's like you go to a king and the king says you can have anything in the universe, anything in my realm, and you say, okay, I'll take an ear of corn. That's comfort. Because contentment is vast. Contentment is infinite. Contentment is not adaptable. Awareness is not adaptable. It does not change. Which is why we avoid awareness in order to change something. We forget the awareness and try to polish the form. We're not willing to concede to the paradigm shift. See, surrender is simply walking out of our narrative. Here's an example, as close as I can come to an example of surrender. So I have this idea of I need to do something outside. So, 63 years old, I walk outside. I get outside. I cannot remember what I need to do. It's not there anymore. I stop for a moment and pause. 
I turn around and go back inside. That's surrender. It's gone. It's not there anymore. It's not there as a worry. It's not there as a regret. It's not there as an expectation. It is gone. Surrender is like that. Surrender is stepping out of something. Not so that it still pulls on our, tugs on us. And Well, what about our... It's not an adaptive response. It's not moving from denial to acceptance. It's a different paradigm. And it's the mechanism of choice for the spiritual journey. The problem is that we're so used to adapting, we think we can fake this thing so that we can adapt our way into a new paradigm. And so we keep the chatter going in just very more and more subtle ways, dharmic ways now, dharmic subtlety, dharma voices in me, but very subtle, just, you know, almost not there, but there. And we remain fixed. doesn't matter how subtle the language is as long as there's a single word. Because in the other paradigm there is stillness. Did you think you were going to get away from it? Did you want to get away from it? I don't know where I am on those. <laughs> I have to give it up. So we begin to look at our journey. We begin to see what's in front of us. We begin to align energetically to where this journey takes us. We begin to feel the need to, to move, which increases the intentionality for us to move forward into this journey. And then we apply the methodology of choice, which is surrender. This is a surrender game. The spiritual journey is a journey of surrender. A journey of quietude, said in a different way. A journey of heart, said in yet a different way. The heart doesn't jabber. It responds. It sees a need, responds. The heart, which is the essence of us, of all things being together, doesn't need a sophisticated, a sophist, it has a philosophy of why it needs to get involved. It doesn't need a philosophy of involvement. It gets involved because it is together with all things. And so the adaptive response is what we begin to evolve out of. And many of us are not yet ready for that, which is fair enough. I'm not trying to rush anyone on this journey. And if we need to adapt and to feel better about ourselves and to add a little lightness and a little heart to ourselves, fine. And when we feel ready, but fine, that'll be... When there's a readiness to move out of adaptation, then 
the journey will be in front of us. But for us to remember what the journey is, not to forget it, because we need to shore up some of the some of our self-worth, or many of us, most of us need to shore up something or other. But we keep shoring up all along the way. 30 years we're still shoring up. Long past the need to release all of this. We think we're actually moving in a wise direction. We think this is the way it goes. It's not the way it goes. It's the way this paradigm has always taken us. It's the drift of the iceberg. But to fly free requires something else from us. Is it so hard? Many of us move effortlessly into our heart. Effortlessly responding to something that's in front of us. Never realizing that in that moment there's a moment of stillness and absolute togetherness that the heart is responding. The mind quickly picks up the narrative once more and claims ownership of what it just did. But in the doing of it, the mind was not the owner of that deed. And as we begin to see that the will will always claim the volitional response needed, but it's always just about two or three mind moments behind the actual response that is offered. And therefore, when you start seeing it, you say, just drop this needless chatter. This chatter does nothing but pull me back into safe ground. Why not just release this thing and immerse myself in the life as it's being lived? And so we adapt out of adaptation. And then the final link is we surrender adaptation entirely and fall into the quietness of the breeze coming up the valley, of the touch of the wind in the coolness of the night's air. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.